0: The sermon today is based on the following text from God's Word. Join me in a reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So we're
1: back in uh, Genesis this week. And in fact, this will be our our last week in Genesis uh, until the end of May. Uh, If if you remember, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that um, we're going to uh, go back and forth between the book of Genesis and the book of Romans over the next uh, 18 months or so. And as we come to the end of Genesis 11, we come to um, a significant breaking point in in the book. And so we're going to pause there and switch over to, to Romans, and we'll look at Romans 1 through 3, uh, in, in, in the early part of, of May and uh, in June. But today, we we're at uh, Genesis 11. And just to remind you, this is the first of the five books that Moses wrote to God's people as they were making their way from slavery in Egypt, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, to the Promised Land. And um, here we have this story which uh, I suspect is um, perhaps familiar to some of you. Uh, But in order to give us uh, some context, let me try to just summarize where we've been. Uh, Genesis begins with chapters 1 and chapter 2 of God's creative work. And what we learn about that is that everything God made was very good. There was nothing lacking. There was no um, shortfall. God wasn't stingy. Adam and Eve had everything they needed in perfect communion and fellowship with God in his creation. And then Genesis 3, things begin to unravel. Uh, Adam and Eve, uh, they disobey God. And as a result, the tragic story of the downward spiral of God's relationship with humanity begins to unfold. And things only get worse in chapters 4 to 6. Uh, We find out right away the story of Cain and Abel. There's bloodshed, uh, there's warfare, uh, people begin to do what they want, when they want, where they want, and it continues to unravel through chapter six where we read the story of Noah and the flood and God's intention to wipe the face of the earth clean from all flesh. And yet in the midst of that, he makes a promise to, to Noah. He preserves Noah and his family and the ark. And the wealth of animals uh, that God commands him to bring into the ark with him. And he preserves Noah through the flood. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as we come to chapter 11, it's preceded by another genealogy in in chapter 10. And chapter 10 is often referred to as the table of nations. And I'm going to spare you a bunch of details, but just to help you get a flavor for why the story of the Tower of Babel is here, I, I need to do a little, little bit of teaching for you. Genesis 10 uh, is one big, huge genealogy that traces all of the human race from Noah's three sons. And verse 32 of chapter 10 is summarizes the whole chapter. And it says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And there are two details I want to mention that come out of this genealogy. The first is, if you were to really pay attention to, to that genealogy, it's written from the perspective of the promised land. Now remember, who is this written to? It's written to God's people as they're about to enter the promised land. God is giving his people a global perspective of how things came to be. And as you look at this genealogy, what you discover is that all of these peoples, these people groups, were scattered north, south, east, and west over the face of the earth. But then the second detail is that in Genesis 10, there are 70 people groups listed. There were 14 uh, Japhethites, 30 Hamites, and 26 Shemites, totaling 70. And in the Bible, the number 70 is, an, is a number that is often used by, by writers to, to, to suggest uh, totality, comprehensiveness. In other words, that... The, that subtle literary clue of the the writer here, what he's telling us is that Genesis 10 is about the whole human race. What we find here isn't just a small niche in the ancient Near East. It is intended to communicate to us something about the entire human race. And what we're going to see is that what's true back then is every bit as much true today. And so when we come to Genesis 11, the story slows down. Genesis 10 takes us through uh, lots of people, lots of years. And then Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, it's a snapshot. It's a vignette, a, a pulling out of a very key ingredient and in story from Genesis chapter 10. And what we see here in verses 1 through 2 is the setting says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, you'd have no reason to really know about this, this place, this land of Shinar, but what you do need to know is that that is the same thing as the land of Babylon, or Babylonia. And if you know anything about the Bible, all of a sudden, the land of Shinar takes on great significance. Because Babylon is a major player in the story of the Bible. And in fact, if you want to, you can jot down um, chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. There's a character mentioned there, Nimrod. And that's the first time that we see the, the city of Babel, or Babylon, mentioned. And it's most likely that this story comes right out of that um, aspect of Genesis chapter 10. But when we come to Genesis 11, what we're going to see here is that despite the flood, despite what God intended to do in the flood, the reality is that the character of the human heart hasn't changed. And that this story, it describes for us the universal posture and attitude of humanity. That's what it's meant to show us and it's we'll see two things. First of all, we're going to see the essence of sin. This is a culminating story of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And it shows us the very essence of sin. And what we're going to see, I'm going to call the essence of sin kingdom building. We'll see what that is in a moment. So the first point we'll look at is the essence of sin. But the second, well, what's God's response to that? What we're going to see is that God intervenes, he disrupts, and then he reverses. So let's first look at the essence of sin. Look with me in verses three to four here. It says, they they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The essence of sin. Now, I think most of us, uh, whether you, you're really familiar with the church or, or not at all, when you hear that word sin, it's, it's usually always negative. It's, I've done something wrong. or I've broken a, a rule or a law. And that's certainly part of it. But what we have here, the essence of sin is actually a much more positive thing. It's a building project. I want you to think about this today. That sin is a building project, deeply entrenched in your life. And here for us, what we see is this building project of men and women building a city and, and wanting to build an enormous tower that reaches to the top of the heavens. Now, what does a tower mean in the ancient Near East? Well, it's not a whole lot different than what it would mean today. A tower really does signify uh, the identity of this place, its significance, what matters to these people. And in the ancient Near East, it was probably it was the most dominant feature in most cities. And in fact, uh, we think that actually this practice of building these towers was developed in Babylonia, which makes this story all the more significant. And the tower was believed to be where heaven and earth overlap, or where heaven and earth meet. And in fact, the most famous tower that we have record of from the ancient Near East is the one from Babylon. And here's the name of that tower. The name of that tower was the house of the foundation of heaven and earth the place of the foundation of heaven and earth. Now think about that for a moment. What what is that telling us? That tower, in the minds of those people and their building project, this is the center of the universe. This is where life begins and ends. This is where our ideas, our plans, our name, our legacy is established. Now, think about this for a moment. Why did they build this tower? Look here in verse 4. First of all, it was to make a name for ourselves, it was a way of trying to justify their existence, to know that they matter, that their legacy would endure, that they would gain significance, justifying their existence. But then, notice, not only is it to make a name for themselves, it was also to prevent being scattered over the face of the earth. Now, if you were to read Genesis 1 through 11 in one sitting, you might actually catch this. But but since we're taking this a week at a time, it, it might not immediately come to your attention. In chapter 9, verse 1, one of the very first things that that God says to Noah is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Which is an echo of God's original design for the human race. That our calling as creatures made in God's image is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it on God's behalf. But what we have here is the exact opposite of that. It's the human race saying, no, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to build our own kingdom right here. In other words, the essence of sin as a building project is reimagining and redefining who we really are and what our purpose is in God's world. So here's the point. The essence of sin... It is a building project. It is our attempt to live independently of God by building our own kingdom rather than seeking God's kingdom. Now, I don't know if that, if that is intriguing to you or that lands with you or if that creates new ways of thinking about your life. But this story is not just a way back there and then. This kind of building activity is a part of who we are. It's how we endeavor to live independently of God. It's how we try to justify our existence. It's how we try to reimagine or recraft God's original design in order to meet our design. So that's the first point, the essence of sin. But what's God's response? What we see God do here is he intervenes, he disrupts, and then he reverses. How does he intervene? Look in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, it'd be easy to run right past this. However, I think the the writer here is, is making a very ironic statement. Remember, the tower was intended to be the place where heaven and earth overlap. But notice, God has to come down. That's a very subtle, humorous way of saying, your towers can't reach to God. Your building projects will never get to God. They will always fall short. God will always have to reach down and come down. It's a very subtle way of making a a note of, uh, it's a humbling note. God has to come down. The writer is telling us that despite man's best building projects, God really is utterly and totally and absolutely sovereign and transcendent over all that he has made. He intervenes, and we're going to come back to that. But then notice he disrupts verse 6. God says no. He says, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God says no. He prevents humanity from doing what they're capable of doing. And why does he do that? In verse 6 he says, because if he doesn't, there will be, nothing will be impossible for them. Now, what's that mean? Does that mean here God is fearing for his own place and authority that humanity might usurp him? That's not at all what this is saying. What this is saying is that if God doesn't intervene, there will be no limit to humanity's arrogant schemes. In other words, if if God doesn't intervene, our destructive building projects will, ev- will wreak more and more and more havoc. Think of it kind of like this. It's a merciful judgment. To give you an example, it's like walking with uh, your child in a busy city and you come to a street corner and your son or daughter thinks it's time to cross the street and they they are going to cross that street. And unless you pull, you, you reach out your hand and you grab their arm, they will plunge probably into the middle of traffic and die. That's what God's doing here. He's saying, you have a building project that you think you need to, to finish and I'm gonna prevent you from doing that and it's gonna be painful and it's gonna hurt but it is for your good. God says no. He disrupts it. But how does he say no? Look in verse 7. He confuses their language. Here we're told that humanity had one common language. Which you can imagine would make it possible for you to do a lot with a lot of people over a lot of territory. And yet God says no. I'm going to confuse their language. In other words... All of the normal patterns of relating are completely upended. All of our expectations of how life used to work are upended. But then he also, not only does he confuse, he scatters. Verse 8, he dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they had to leave off their building project, building their city. He prevents them from finishing. Now, I want you to pause with you for a minute and ask you some questions. The essence of sin is a building project, and God's response is no, and it's a merciful one. Think with me about some of these questions. How are you trying to build your own kingdom? And remember, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to build your own kingdom? We see it in the story, remember? How are you trying to prove your worth? from your building project or how is your building project really your effort to live independently of God and you know you can do that either by being really religious or really irreligious by being really good or being really bad another question where is God telling you no this is a no story Where is God telling you no? Or how is God keeping you from doing what you are in fact capable of doing or think you're capable of doing? But it would be incredibly harmful. Where is God confusing your world and preventing you from building your kingdom? Let me let me continue to press in on that and and give you a couple tests. How can you begin to see your building project? This is not an easy thing to see in, in our lives. Here, let me, let me draw out two key emotions, fear and anger. Now, these are super complicated and deep emotions. So I, what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm not trying to be comprehensive, but I'm trying to use them as doorways into discerning your, the building projects in your life that God may be saying no to. First of all, anger. Look for anger in your life. What does anger in your life tell you? Well, among the many things it tells us, the one thing it does tell us is you're not getting something that you want. Oftentimes, anger comes because we're not getting what we want. And left unchecked, anger often leads to Bitterness. Anger takes root. It puts down roots and bears bitterness. But what about fear? What does fear tell us? Fear is this nagging sense that it's possible I might lose what I do have. I'm vulnerable. My building project might not last. I might lose it. Now, what does that lead to? It leads to a lack of generosity. Anger and fear are two incredibly powerful points of entry for discerning our building projects, the real essence of sin in our lives. Come at it another way. Think about your successes and your failures in your life. When you succeed at something... How do you respond? Do you find yourself absolutely elated and to the point where there is, if you're honest, a proud self-satisfaction? I have done it. I have made it. Or think about your failures. Are you absolutely devastated by your failures? which ends up leading to an intense self-loathing. Both of those indicators, an inordinate response to your successes and an inordinate response to your failures may be a very strong clue to the building project in your life of proving that you are somebody and or living independently of God. Now, so God... He intervenes, he disrupts, but then he reverses. Notice again here, verse 4, says, come, or actually verse, verse 5, when it says, the Lord came down, and then verse 7, come, let us go down. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Lots throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see God moving from heaven to earth. If you think about it, that's what the tabernacle and the temple is. God moving from heaven to earth to have a relationship with his image bearers. And we see that again and again as we move through the story of the Bible. But as we come into the New Testament and we continue to see that, this idea of God saying, come, let us go down is at the very heart of the biblical story. That God would actually take on flesh in the second person of the Trinity, in the person of Jesus Christ, that the word, notice all the language in this story about words and language. That actually ends up leading humanity away from God. God enters in As the word become flesh. The word full of grace and truth. And it's in fact the story of the gospel that is the reversal of this story. And we read the story of it in Acts chapter 2 earlier this morning. Where God pours out his spirit and people from all over. North, south, east and west are proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own tongue. Think about that for a moment. There are so many implications of that story for us. But just to to draw out one, what that tells us is it's only the gospel that can bring true unity across the human race. That's a profound claim. But that's a claim the scriptures make again and again. And how does God bring this reversal in Jesus Christ, as the word become flesh. Well, remember how how God brought confusion and scattering in Genesis 11. I want you to think about that from the perspective of Jesus. Jesus, he endured the confusion. What does he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is total confusion, bewilderment and if we didn't have the end of the story the cross is anything but it looks exactly like a failed building project Jesus endures the confusion but he also endured the scattering think of it like this Jesus is alone on the cross isolated everyone has left him Everyone's been scattered. Now, why did he come to do that? See, Jesus has come in order to bear the judgment that we see in Genesis 11. He comes to bear the judgment of God's no so that you might hear a yes from God. That his word would come to you in the midst of your Ridiculous building projects. And instead of confusion and being scattered, you are welcomed. You are forgiven. You are brought home. You're rescued. You're restored. You're made new. And how does Jesus do that? Think of it like this. Remember how the essence of sin is a self-serving building project that the character of the human heart persists. And what we discover is it's only God's word that can uncover the reality of your heart. Think of Hebrews chapter four. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How can you really unpack the building projects in your life that need to be left off and forsaken and abandoned. And at the very same time, not just leave them off, but turn to the building project you were designed for, to seeking God's kingdom and the good news that he has given us in Jesus. It's from the scriptures. It's only God's word that can set you straight that can reveal the thoughts and intentions of your heart that you're so used to, you can't even see them. And not only that, God's word is what actually leads us to new life. It can equip you. It teaches you. It confronts you. It even rebukes you. But in order that you might pursue God's kingdom, his building project, which is nothing less than making all things new.